Thank you so much. It's a tremendous pleasure for me to be here. I deeply appreciate this glimpse into your unity and the remarkable things that you're doing together. And I stand with you in the U.S. and from England in great admiration and gratitude for David and certainly praying for his full recovery too. My family is Irish, not Scottish. One of my favorite stories of Ireland is the story of a Spanish professor who was looking at the differences between Spain and Ireland, and he was over on the West Coast, and if you know, time over there almost stands still. Old Irishman, puffing away in his pipe, propping up the pub, and the professor asked him all sorts of questions. At the end, he asked him, now in in Ireland, do you have any word that's the equivalent of our Spanish word, manana? The old Irishman thought for a long time and said, no, we don't have any words as urgent as that. <laughs> now, that was the old Ireland before Ireland became the Celtic tiger, and of course, the recessions taking it back a bit that way. But if you think, one of the features of our modern world is what's called fast life. The incredible speed at which we're living today in the more modern parts of the advanced modern world. 24-7 pressure. Business at the speed of light. And it goes on and on and on. Now, if you look at this incredible speed of our modern world with nanoseconds and so on, our Western sense of time is rooted, of course, in the Scripture. You never find this sort of view in the East by itself with their view of cycles. It's rooted in the scripture, but through science and technology, we've accelerated almost beyond our roots. I find in many parts of the Christian world, there's a stress today wonderfully on thinking Christianly, developing a Christian mind and a Christian worldview. But one of the things missing is a sense of a Christian understanding of time. And that's a key part of the Christian worldview. And without it, there's no sense of dynamism and a sensitivity to the moment, the hour, the generation. Now, of course, in Scripture, we have negative examples as well as positive. Positive one, we all know from the Old Testament, the men of David, skilled in reading the signs of the times to know what course Israel shall follow. Or you women, you all know the story of Esther. For such a time as this. And the Old Testament has negative examples too. Jeremiah taunts the Pharaoh of his day, King Bombast, King Hot Air, all because you missed the moment. The New Testament, oddly, has more examples of the negative. Jesus says to his generation, you can read the weather, but you don't understand this generation. And six times in one chapter, he says, this generation, this generation, this generation. And clearly his generation were missing it. And the supreme negative one, of course, is Palm Sunday. And our Lord's lament over Jerusalem, all because you missed God's moment when it came, as one version says. But there are positive ones in the New Testament too. And I want to pick up my favorite, that came out of the reading we had earlier from Acts 13. 
Acts 13 is a remarkable chapter. At the very first verses, you have a hint about leadership in the church, which many people miss. We think they were all simple, poor, humble people, and most of them were. But you see in those beginnings, one of the people who was an elder in Antioch, along with Paul and Silas and so on, Barnabas, was Menaean, a boyhood friend of King Herod. But the chapter is also significant because this is the chapter where Saul becomes Paul for good. He's referred to as both in the beginning, but after this only as Paul. It's a very important chapter too because this is where Paul decisively turns his back on the Jews who've rejected him again and again in the synagogue and sets his face determinedly to the Gentiles. An extraordinary moment in world mission. But as you heard in the reading, the bulk of the chapter is Paul's response to, do you have anything to say? Imagine asking Paul, do you have anything to say? He's up and he's ready and off he goes. And the sermon preached in the Pisidian Antioch, this is not its hometown Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, The sermon is a long survey, as he does so often, of Jewish history. And his point, of course, in this one, is the contrast between the great King David and David's greater son. And he moves to that climax by showing that David died and is still dead. But great David's greater son truly died. Unlike what the Muslims say, he truly died, but rose again. And in the context of this big sweep, you have this little throwaway verse, because that's all it is. And Paul says simply, David, after he'd served God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep. That's not the point of the whole sermon. It's almost just a little throwaway verse. But I think it's remarkably rich. Now, you don't need to be a theologian, and I'm not. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I'm a layperson. But you don't need to be a theologian to unpack the words there. Every one of them is simple, straightforward English. Nothing complicated or arcane. But let me draw out four very simple points you see there and then put them together and ask yourself, if that could be said of David... May it be said of us in our time that we too, in our callings, in our city, served God's purposes in our generation. First, and they're all very obvious, think what a surprising tribute this is. King David served. I've written a few books. I've never had an hour of writing courses. But I do remember from school many years ago, my teacher saying that good sentences depend on strong verbs, not piled up adjectives. And bad writing is adding all sorts of colorful adjectives, hoping it'll be strong. No, no, verbs. Here's the verb in the sentence. But you think what might have been there. Now we know from our Jewish friends that David is second only to Moses as the great hero for the Jewish people. Not Joshua, 
not Samuel, not Elijah, Elisha, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah and the other prophets, David. And of course, we all know the life of David, the precocious teenage giant killer, the rebel chieftain, the great royal warrior, the founder of this Jewish dynasty, and of course, the sweet singer of Israel whose psalms we sing, some of the most beautiful and profound poetry the world has ever known. And here in this chapter, we have the greatest tribute of all. David, God says, a man after my own heart. Now think of the verbs you might have used of David. He fought, he conquered, he danced, he sang, he ruled, he founded. You could have all sorts of verbs. But Paul chooses the one you don't often use of kings. Served, served. Now, undoubtedly, he's thinking of Jesus. Thinking of Jesus' teaching. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And, of course, our Lord not only says that, he shows that. And we all remember the incident when they come in after the hot, dusty day, and he picks up the basin and the towel and washes their feet. Now, you know... In those times, it would be, if they were wealthy enough, a slave. And, sorry you women, in those times, if there was no slave, it would be the woman. And if there was no woman around, it would be the youngest disciple who'd do it. But he does it. And you can see in Paul's writings how deeply struck he is by service of our Lord. I love the beginning of Thessalonians, his letter to them. Telling how they've turned from idols to what? To worship, to praise, to all sorts of words could have been chosen. Paul says you've turned from idols to serve the living God. Now think of that in the context of our world today. Because in our world today, particularly with the rise, say, of psychology or a consumer market, it's all about I, myself, and me. Described as the narcissistic age, the me age. Everything's for us individually. So are our media are there to entertain us. Our counseling is there to cater to our psychological needs. Our shopping consumerism is there to cater to our needs and our wishes and our fantasies. It's all about us. I hope it doesn't come in here, but in North America, there's a dreadful new word for worship services. They call it a worship experience. And it's about us. And not surprisingly, if you have a hundred cereals, you choose the one you like. And if you have a score of church experiences and worship experiences, oh, I don't like that music, I'll go there. I don't like that sermon's too long, too short, too whatever. I'll go there. It's all about us. But the very root word of liturgy is service. And worship service is exactly the right term. And at the heart of all we do, trusting and obeying and following Jesus, is service. A surprising tribute. The next thing you can see in this little verse is equally obvious. A significant task. David serves God's purpose in his generation. Now, in the West, we're used to the fact that we're a 
civilization, a culture with dynamism, purpose, projects, and so on. But we often forget that actually this came out of the gospel and notions such as calling, which was so strong in the scriptures, so strong in the Reformation. And while we're a cut flower civilization today, we pretend it'll go on living forever, although we've cut the roots. We need to realize how significant this is. Do you read much of our friends who follow the Eastern religions? I, in my youth, lived 10 years in the East. Actually studied under a guru for a while. But any of you know the Eastern religions, time is seen as a cycle. Hindus say, for example, you might go around 35,000 times. The problem isn't you die. The problem is you're reborn and go around again. And in that sort of a worldview, there isn't any profound sense of the dignity of an individual, let alone the purpose of history. It's all part of what the Hindus call maya, illusion. There's a, what Milan Kundera called in his famous novel, the unbearable lightness of being. Now, of course, in the West, we also have, as a contrast to the gospel, our atheist friends, atheists, agnostics, and many others. Their universe is quite different. I remember as a student being there with, uh, in small seminars in London University with Bertrand Russell. You read Bertrand Russell. Everything comes from chance. So there's no meaning in the universe. If we want meaning, we've got to make meaning. Our own little purpose imposed on the world. And Russell's picture was always the Greek Atlas giant, Atlas, who carries his own universe by himself. But all a do-it-yourself universe. Now, some people who are wealthy enough and young enough and time enough or whatever... They can get away with feeling that they can impose their purpose in the world for a while, but most people know well that you can't. But where did our Western sense of purpose come from that the Reformation so powerfully rediscovered? The same God who said, let there be light, and a cosmos sprang into being, is the one who comes to earth and he says to his followers, follow me, calling And as we follow him, we enter into his purpose for our lives. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us better than our family, our friends know us. And we rise higher, we go further. We're in touch with aspirations that he knows are ours. And there's the deepest sense of purpose the world has ever seen. And here, David serving God's purpose. Now, the trouble with calling is that you can cut the roots easily, and then again it becomes a sort of do-it-yourself thing that very easily leads to conceit. You know the sad story of a Christian whom Winston Churchill couldn't stand, who was in his cabinet in World War II, and the man had a very high sense of calling and a rather strong sense of ego and conceit. And one day after the man left the room, Churchill, who found him very priggish and arrogant, said, There but for the grace of God goes God. (laughs) But what saves calling from being selfish and a matter of us each time? Calling 
We are serving God. We are fulfilling our gifts. He's given us one, two, five, ten, our talents that we're maximizing and multiplying to his glory. But we're doing it because we're serving the master, the king, who one day will come back. And so you have this deeply significant purpose, but at the same time rooted in service. The third little thing, the gain is terribly obvious, is you have in the verse a specific time. David served God in his own generation. Now, the simple fact is that in the global world we're living in today, many people are overwhelmed. And you probably know the dominant world emotion is fear. Not surprisingly in many ways. This world is too big for any of us. We're all rather small. And with instant immediacy, it's changing faster than ever. I could describe it today. It may be different tomorrow. Very easy to be overwhelmed. And very easy to be overcome with fear. Calling, though, gives us a focus and a limitation. None of us are responsible for the world. We couldn't sleep tonight if we were. Even the kings and the queens and the presidents and the prime ministers, they're not responsible for the whole world. We're each only responsible for our gifts, our spheres of influence, our callings, and we pour everything we can into that. And we're not responsible for the whole. And so we can sleep at night and thank God that he is sovereign. And we're not. And he's got many other sisters and brothers following their callings in all over the world. And so each of us does our thing and rests. But you can see here another limitation. David clearly has his sense of calling, although that's much more a New Testament word. But here it's the, call, uh, the limitation that he's serving God's purpose in his own generation. My goodness, today we're saddled with the evils of the past, of what the Inquisition did and this and the other did in the church, and it all happened and it was all wrong. We're not responsible for that. The Lord knows that if we look down ahead, our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren's world, if there is a world, is going to be quite extraordinary. Some people lie awake at night worrying about the world that's to come. We're not responsible for that. But we are responsible for our generation. And there's a specific time about it. And we're to understand what our generation faces, what's shaping our generation, where are its opportunities, where are its challenges, and respond consciously to living in our moment and seizing it before the Lord. But there's a fourth simple little thing in the verse. And that is a simple terminus. After he'd done all that, he fell asleep. Now, of course, Paul's point is the contrast that I mentioned. David died and never rose. Jesus died and rose. But the word he uses is interesting. It's obviously a euphemism. A kinder, gentler way of saying something. And almost every country has its euphemisms about death. Americans are loaded with euphemisms. No one dies in America. They pass away. 
And they're loaded with euphemisms of all sorts. I remember the first time I went there, landed at Kennedy Airport, got off the Pan Am flight and saw a sign saying, Restroom. And I thought, oh, how thoughtful of them to give a restroom after the long flight. I had no idea then what the American word for loo was. We all have our euphemisms, and clearly Paul is using a euphemism. But a euphemism with deep and simple meaning. Because for us, just as we lay our heads on the pillow tonight without fear, tomorrow we'll wake, and one day we'll lay our heads on the pillow or whatever, and our waking will be in heaven. And Jesus' resurrection changes the whole meaning of death for us, and the fear and the disconsolate loss of death is drawn. And so you can truly say, he fell asleep. Now, what does this mean to us, though? I said at the beginning that there's a lot of people talking about thinking Christianly. But one of the missing elements of people who study the Scripture is understanding this biblical view of time. And there's an awful lot about it. Generations. The moment. The day. And so on and so on and so on. I don't think any of us is very good at it. I'm certainly not. But as we look in the Gospels, we see some of the secrets of why people miss their moment and how they should do better. Let me just mention a little there. Clearly, the disciples again and again and again missed it. They got Jesus wrong. Now, it's quite remarkable. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, tried, killed. These are not theological words either. They're words of... Newspaper reporter could use, but it says they understood nothing of this. Why? Well, obviously, they had the wrong framework of expectations. Some of them, clearly, like Simon, probably the zealot, maybe Judas too, had a political framework of a Messiah who was coming, who was going to liberate them from the Romans. And nothing that didn't fit that made any sense. So they didn't get Jesus. And we've always got to be clear that we don't have the wrong political expectations today and miss what God's doing in our time. Some of the disciples, though, very clearly, for example, James and John, they had the wrong personal expectations. And you remember their mom wanted the best seat for them when the kingdom came, right there next to Jesus. They got it all wrong. He wasn't that sort of a king. It wasn't that sort of a kingdom. And they had to learn what this upside-down kingdom really meant and the suffering servant that was him. So you can see again and again, people had the wrong framework, the wrong lens, the wrong filter. And we've got to ask the Lord, Lord, remove from my eyes all the false filters so that I can really see you as you are and see what you're doing today. The second thing is more positive but maybe equally hard. We can see, especially in the book of Acts, that seizing the moment is a matter of listening to the Holy Spirit. I was saying several times over the last few days, the Spirit leads. How did the gospel get to Africa? Philip heard the Spirit and went where he was told and met the Ethiopian eunuch who took the gospel to Africa. 
And he got there before it got to Europe. How did he get to Europe? Paul determined to go to Bithynia. Sure, that was the next place to go. He got it all figured out. He's blocked, checked, frustrated, open to the spirit and the vision of the man from Macedonia. And he crosses across to Europe. And history was changed by that little sailing trip. How did it get to the Gentiles? And I imagine that includes almost all of us tonight, although we may have some Jewish followers of Jesus too. It got there because Peter was willing to have his prejudices blown open by the Holy Spirit and reach out to the centurion and so on and so on and so on. Now, in many of our Christian circles today, in a secularized world, and let's be honest, some of us from Reformed backgrounds have somewhat ignored the Holy Spirit. And we need to be open to the guiding of the Holy Spirit to see what it is we should be doing. But I want to challenge you, especially all of you who are at college. Your generation is described by futurists as the crunch generation. In this sense, that in your adulthood from 20 to when you retire, the world is going to have a convergence of many trends demographic, economic, technological, scientific, environmental, nuclear. And as they converge, there will be a crunch. If the questions raised are not answered well, or if they're not answered at all, humankind is in for rough sailing, to put it mildly. And your generation is going to have to stand up to the plate and answer questions which are mighty. So your generation is going to be one of the significant generations in history. Now that's true for all of us. None of us here tonight, I imagine, have great political power or any other sort of huge power. But who knows just from the story of Scotland and revival that it's one of you, maybe a woman, whose prayers, unknown to the rest of us, would be pivotal in seeing Scotland return to our Lord. We don't know. But I just challenge every one of you to be like King David, someone who serves God's purpose in his generation. And therefore, as the great tribute comes, a man, or for us a man or a woman, after God's own heart. Thank you truly, and the Lord be with you here in Dundee. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.